If you would, open your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 5. Today we continue in our series on a kingdom worldview as we consider what are our basic assumptions to be about reality if we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. As I've told you throughout this series, everybody has a worldview. But because it is something that is assumed, it's just part of our consciousness, we don't usually think about it. And examining it can be difficult. And so uh, it's not, it's not a, a set of beliefs, if you wish, or a philosophy as such. It's these, these assumptions. It's the lens through which we look at reality. Um, and what I've found helpful to do following the lead of others, is to answer, to give some questions and to answer these questions, and that will help us have a better understanding of what, what we think about reality. Dave and I and Gia were talking last Sunday after church, and I don't know if you've noticed this, but the word worldview is becoming much more common. Um, you hear it in the news, both from the left and the right, um, there was a case this week, um, a veteran producer, Tara Henley, she resigned from the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation because she felt it had a radical political agenda. She said, I have no problem with the woke worldview being in the room. I think we should reflect that view, but it can't be the only voice in the room. I'm like, yeah, look, here it is. Um, it's something that's becoming much more common. In this series, what I've tried to do is to show what are the assumptions, the presuppositions behind a kingdom worldview. Thus far, we've looked at five questions. What is first cause? What is the nature of reality? What is a human being? What happens after death? And last week, what is the basis of morality? Today, we come to question number six, and that is, what is the nature of evil? There'll be two parts of the sermon. The first part... We'll talk about what is evil, the nature of evil. And the second part, what is to be our response to evil? Now, before we start, and I tell my students this, I've already made an assumption here that there is such a thing as evil. And so I tell my students, you have to decide whether or not that's part of your worldview, that there is such a thing as evil. And in our time, this can be confusing. So, for example, uh, Joseph Campbell in The Power of Myth, he said, I know the center... And I know that good and evil are simply temporal aberrations, that in God's view, there is no difference. So, so no difference between good and evil. Okay? And yet elsewhere, he says, all societies are evil, sorrowful, inequitable, and so they will always be. There was a time, I can remember a time, 70s, 80s, 90s, where... People didn't use the word evil very much in, in public conversation. It wasn't part of the popular vocabulary. Um, this changed after 9-11, uh, where President Bush uh, was speaking of evil, the axis of evil, the evildoers. And I think I've mentioned this before, but there was a panel at Rutgers, a panel of four professors that were talking about 9-11. And one of them, after a while, he sort of noticed something that they seem really reluctant to speak about evil um, as a category. So we asked one of the professors, you know, evil is, what about Hitler? Because, you know, he's the go-to guy, you know, when you speak of evil. And the professor was not willing to say that. 
However, they did agree that George Bush was evil. Okay, so I would argue that you can, if you find someone with whom you disagree about everything, that you have no common ground seemingly, you will agree on this, that there is such a thing as evil. And even if, like Joseph Campbell, you say it's the same thing, um, if you disagree with someone, you'll, you'll find yourself being called evil. Okay, So it is, it is part of our thinking. Um, no matter what position we take on various issues, there is this assumption that there is such a thing as evil. And if it isn't Hitler, then it's someone else. So Gore Vidal, uh, giving a lecture, that Lowell lecture at Harvard said, the greatest unmentionable evil at the center of our culture is monotheism. Well, that's kind of strong language. Then a British journalist said, the real axis of evil is Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. You know, versus Iran and North Korea, you know, the ones that President Bush had mentioned. I think people are more comfortable now, some 20 years after 9-11, they're more comfortable using the word evil. It's not like it was back in the, the 80s and the 90s. So what is evil? Um, we looked at this question in a series about 12 years ago. We did, a, I think, a six-part series on evil. Um, so some of this may sound familiar. N.T. Wright, in a book entitled Evil and the Justice of God, defines evil this way. It is the force of anti-creation, anti-life, the force which opposes and seeks to deface and destroy God's good world of space, time, and matter, and above all, God's image-bearing human creatures. I have to confess that the earlier part of this week, as I was working on the sermon, I really, really struggled with this definition. I'm like, boy, was I wrong 12 years ago to give this definition, because we began this series with what is first cause. It was personal. God is the infinite personal God, that only uh, uh, the only cause that can be first cause has to be personal and has to have personal agency. So how can we have a personal God who creates the world, he's first cause, and then you have evil, which is seen as a force, meaning it's not personal. And then, as I was thinking this through, I remembered that we've seen that God is life, that between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit is love, and this this ongoing relationship is what we now call not only love, but it is life. And if someone turns away from the personal God, who is life, they turn to death. Death is the turning away from life. Okay. It isn't as though you have two equal categories. God is life, and when you turn away from him, then you have death. In the same way, if God is personal, when you turn away from him, then what, what is left is the impersonal. And therefore, one of the things about the nature of evil is that it is an impersonal force. It is acted out by human beings, okay? And we'll see that as we go along, okay? But it is a force, a force that is anti-creation. And if nothing else, it is anti-human, those who bear the image of God. It's one of the things Noah is told, you know, that if somebody kills a human being, you are to put that person to death because 
that person bears the image of God. You can't kill God, okay? But you can kill someone who bears his image, okay? It seems strange that in spite of the horrors of the 20th century, people still believe in progress and have sort of downplayed the whole issue of evil. They believe that the world is basically a good place um, and its problems are more or less solvable. You know, we can, we can fix these things. If we have technology, if we have the right education, development, if we have democracy, it will solve these problems. The reason people think that in spite of the Holocaust and the genocides that have occurred, I think goes back to the 19th century where people began to push aside the notion of original sin. That we are born into this world as fallen creatures. Um, Well, if you do away with that, then what is the explanation for why people do what they do? Well, different people come along. Uh, Karl Marx says, well, it's all about money. That's what drives people. Uh, Sigmund Freud, it's all about sex. Uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, it's all about power. And so you have all this human motivation, but nothing about sin, nothing about evil. Okay, that's been conveniently sort of pushed aside. The Bible tells us that all humanity is fallen. We are fundamentally flawed. We are alienated from the Creator. We are in rebellion against the Creator. Um, And yet in the 20th century, this is something that has been forgotten. Now we live in the 21st century, in a postmodern world, and postmodern people are not as optimistic as modern people were. Uh, They don't have as high a view of humanity and uh, human actions as previous generations did. And yet they still use many of the same tools that modernists use to deconstruct human beings, why people do what they do. And as a result, because people have gotten rid of original sin and evil, which you, you can get rid of it in your thinking and in your speaking, but the reality is it's there. What we, what the result is we live in a culture of suspicion. We're suspicious of everyone's actions. And then we might go back to Karl Marx, it's about money, or Freud, it's about sex. But never do postmodern people say, no, it's because of evil. It's because we are fallen and that we are sinners. Such a view, I think, is really, really sadly mistaken. If nothing, else, if nothing else, it's dehumanizing. Because now a person is not responsible for their actions. Okay? N.T. Wright says, there is no moral dignity left because there is nobody to bear the blame. Human beings aren't responsible. That's what we are told. And as a result, they become less than human. If I am not responsible for my actions, then what am I? What, what kind of a creature am I if I bear no responsibility? And if you doubt this, then just look at the news where somebody can commit a horrific crime and then people are scrambling to find out why, in fact, this person did that thing. Did you have a bad childhood? with some type of chemical imbalance? And these things may be true. Okay, I'm not saying that a bad childhood doesn't affect a person's actions, but the reality is because we are fallen, we are now 
are sort of in that lane of being able to do something quite horrific. And the second problem is, if you know, if in fact um, no one is responsible, then no one can be redeemed. You can't be redeemed. What would you be redeemed from? You're not responsible. It's, it's not your fault. If there is no evil, how can there be redemption? For many in the present time, the gospel means nothing. Because in order to be saved, you have to be lost. In order to be redeemed, you have to have something or be someone worthy of redemption. I shouldn't say worthy, but someone to be redeemed. In order to exist, you must have an identity, not just simply, oh, it's because of the chemicals or it's because of your environment, all these different things, and you're just sort of this empty vessel. For us as God's people, our identity is found in the fact that we are made in the image of the Creator. We are not the same people we were 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Our age, our health, our experiences, our hardships have changed us, but we still bear the image of the Creator. At this point, you may have been thinking, well, Damon, that, I don't think that way. And, and maybe not consciously, but we live in a culture in which this is sort of preached to us every day through the news, I think perhaps more than anything, uh, through arts, through advertising, you know, people are basically good. And when they do bad things, it's really not their fault. It's really not their fault. I said there were two parts of the sermon. The first is, what is the nature of evil? Second, which I think maybe helps us more in this regard, is how are we to respond to evil? I think it helps us with the question, what is the nature of evil? The place to begin to answer this question is, how has God responded to evil? How does God respond to evil? We're made in his image, and though we are fallen, uh, we look to him. We are now his children by the grace of God. Um, How did God respond to evil? And that should inform us how we should respond to evil. I think a question that all of us have asked at one time, perhaps more than once, is... What does God say about evil? We want an explanation. Um, We want to know what God thinks about evil. Why is it here in the first place? How did it get here? And why is it allowed to continue? Um, How long will this go on? It's interesting. I don't think the Bible answers these questions. We would like it if it did, but I don't think it does. Because the Bible is not designed primarily to give us information, okay? Uh, information to sort of satisfy our inquiring mind. The inquiring minds want to know. That's not what, why the Bible is there. What we find is the story of what God has done, is doing, and will do about evil. The key story, I think, in the beginning is the story of Abraham. It's one of the reasons I chose our first hymn. The God of Abraham prays. The call of Abraham is the solution to the problem of evil. Okay. The problem of evil. What does that mean? 
Well, in Genesis 1 through 11, we are given three specific instances in which evil is manifested in the behavior of humanity. The first is human rebellion, where human beings rebel against God. This is the story of Adam and Eve. They ate, they disobeyed God. And what does God do? He judges the evil that they have done. And his judgment takes the form of expelling them from the garden, putting cherubs with uh, flaming swords so that they cannot get to the tree of life. Um, The ground is cursed because of their sin. It will produce obstructions, thorns and thistles. But God's project is not finished. God's project of creation. Now, instead, it will take longer and it will go through a torturous route. I would point out, though, that even in God's judgment on evil, there is, in fact, grace. It's mixed in with the curse, but there is, in fact, grace. God does not kill them on the day that they eat from the tree. God gives them clothing to cover their nakedness. And once they're outside of the garden, uh, Eve conceives Cain, and she says, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. There's a real recognition that while they were deserving of just being exterminated, God was gracious, and God gave her a son. Of course, the son became the first murderer in human history. The second story is that of the flood. Um, where man's thoughts were only wicked all the time. And how does he respond? On the one hand, there is judgment. He floods the earth. But on the other hand, there is an act of grace. He spares Noah and his family and the creatures that are in the ark. It is worth noting that there's nothing in the story that says Noah and his family are going to be different in fact, if you know the story, after Noah and his family come out, after a particular time, uh, one of his sons, in fact, uh, in a way that we are not fully sure, he violates his father's dignity. Um, his father, by the way, who was drunk at the time. So we don't have a sense that, oh, now everything's going to be fine. There's still sin in the world. And yet God is gracious. The third story is found in Genesis 11, the story of the Tower of Babel. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves, not be scattered over the face of the earth. First, there is rebellion with Adam and Eve. There is wickedness in the time of Noah. And now there is arrogance. Having survived the flood, as humanity begins to grow, they decide that they are going to take matters into their own hands and they are going to make a name for themselves. God looks down on them and their efforts and confuses their their language so that the human race would not be able to carry out its arrogant ambitions. This is what God has done about evil. On the one hand, he confronts it, he judges it, and then he does something to stop it from having its desired effect. And God does something new. He's beginning a new project. This is where Abraham comes in. The Tower of Babel is Genesis 11. Genesis 12 is the call of Abraham. He tells Abraham, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So, 
What are we to think of God's response to evil in these three stories? Um, about exiling Adam and Eve, people say, well, he didn't keep his word because they were supposed to die and they didn't die. Um, and on the other hand, it seems a bit extreme, doesn't it? Why are you kicking all the garden just because they ate something from a tree? I mean, really? That somebody takes something from a tree and eats it and you're going to kill them? You're going to expel them? Either response seems extreme. With the flood, it does seem excessive. Flood the whole planet because of the wickedness of human beings. Um, as I talked about last week with morality, sometimes we think God, that we have a better sense of what is right and wrong than God does. I would never flood the whole earth simply because people are wicked, and yet he does this. With the Tower of Babel, his judgment is somewhat bizarre, if not paranoid. I mean, people say, we're going to build a tower to reach to the heavens, so we'll be great. God knows they can't reach to heaven with, with a tower, and yet his response is to confuse their speech. I've mentioned this before, and I think it helps us in this regard, how we think about evil today. First of all, we usually ignore evil unless it hits us in the face. You know, we, we just imagine that, I don't know, somewhere in the back of our mind that it just isn't there. And then when it confronts us, when something happens either to us or we read in the news of someone doing something horrible, we are shocked, we are surprised. How can this be? We're civilized. We're not, we're not living a thousand years ago, two thousand years. We are, we're in 2022. This, how did these things happen? And then the third thing is we tend to react in immature ways, dangerous ways. Because we, we had forgotten that evil existed, and then when it shows its head, we're shocked, and so our response is, I think, out of proportion. As a result, we may, in fact, conclude that this is how God has reacted. That God forgot that evil was around, he was shocked when he saw it, and then he reacted in a very immature way instead of a sort of a reasonable way. God does not overreact, okay? God knows exactly what he's doing. But the second thing to consider is that in each of these three incidents, God is not stoic. God is deeply affected by this. With the sin of Adam and Eve, he lost his partners in creation those who in his place were to have dominion over his creation. The wickedness during the time of Noah, if you read in Genesis chapter 6, the Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. God is not simply offended by evil, but deeply pained by it. And then... With Babel, he was just just exasperated at the plans of these people. All of this, God knows he will have to continue to experience. You know, we may wonder, why doesn't God do something about bad people, these evil things that they're doing? And we forget that God, in fact, himself is deeply affected by these things. But in grace, while there is judgment, there is always grace.
So what is the solution? What is God's solution to the problem of evil? Well, it begins with Abraham when he calls him and says that all people on earth will be blessed through you. But if you read the story of Abraham and his descendants, um, they sound like more of a problem than they do a solution. Evil works its way through humanity. God is going to, in fact, bring the solution through humanity. But boy, it doesn't seem like it's going to be Abraham. Uh, Remember, God promised him a son and and Sarah couldn't get pregnant. So she said, here, sleep with my maid. And uh, Hagar, and she produces Ishmael. Um, God tells him, I will give you a son. And what does Abraham do? Not once, but twice, he allows his wife to be taken by another man into a harem. First it's Pharaoh, and then it's Abimelech. And the second, the second case, I think, is even more egregious because a few months before, the Lord Jesus himself had appeared to Abraham and said, this time next year, Sarah's going to have a son. You've been given the promise. He'd been waiting 24 years at that point, but within a year, you're going to have a son. And he lets some man take his wife. Um, Yeah, he doesn't sound like the solution to me. And then look at the stories of his descendants. Jacob, uh, who lied, who deceived his father. His sons, who had thought to kill Joseph, their brother, but instead sell him into slavery. And it goes on and on. For my money, these people sound like more of the problem than the solution. What does God do about evil? After Jacob dies, the brothers are concerned. The ten brothers, not Benjamin, because he wasn't involved, but the ten brothers. And they're like, you know, when dad died, he said... You know, you need to be nice to us. Um, and uh, I think Joseph was really troubled by this. And he, and he tells them, you meant it for evil. The word evil is used there. But God meant it for good. The God's work in creation continues. And yes, there is evil. And God will judge it. He confronts it. But God is gracious. And he is able to use the evil things that people do for his purpose. Again, N.T. Wright says, somehow, strangely, and to us sometimes even annoyingly, the creator God will not simply abolish evil from his world. We want to know why not. Why doesn't God do something about it? And we are not told why. We're simply told what he does. He contains evil, he restrains it, he prevents it from doing its worst, And he will, even on occasion, use the evil of person's actions for his purposes. Had Joseph's brothers not sold him into slavery, he wouldn't have gone down to Egypt and give wisdom to Pharaoh, 13 years later, about what, in fact, he was supposed to do about the coming famine. Okay, what is to be our reaction to evil? Well, there are different solutions that people provide. Um, in Eastern th- thought, in Buddhism and Hinduism, it's detachment. Just detach yourself from the world, sort of another form of stoicism. Or you can acknowledge that it's there, but it's simply the result of blind chance. Uh, you know, we're still in the process of evolving, and then you know, somewhere down the line, we're not going to have these issues anymore. Um, 
you can engage, and there are people, in fact, who want to fight against evil because they think it is wrong. Or you can simply sit back and hope that one day things will be right. In our text today, in Matthew 5, we find two things, and I'll talk about these in in a bit, but first of all, there is a recognition of evil, and secondly, there is a response to evil. Look, if you would, we're in Matthew 5, verse number 38. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be the sons of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. There's something else. In the passage, one of the passages that comes right before this, in verse number 27, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, I would say to do evil, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. What we find in these passages is a connection between evil and sin. Evil is manifested in sin. What is to be our response to evil? I would like to suggest three avenues of thought in this matter. First of all, we are to acknowledge and we are to name evil. In our day, I think this is more difficult in that many people say evil doesn't exist. You know, if somebody does something bad, it's because of genetics or whatever, but it's not really evil. It's, it's not really their fault. Um, by the way, if, if there is no such a thing as evil, then why did Jesus come into the world? There's no need for redemption. I'm not responsible. I haven't done anything wrong. I haven't done any evil. Why should there be any redemption? We must acknowledge the existence of evil. And in doing so, we proclaim the gospel that Jesus came and won the victory over evil. But let's get back to the matter of naming evil. Um, what is to be the basis of our naming evil? How, what, what gives us the right to say, that's evil, that's wrong? And who gets to do the naming? Okay. Uh, let me answer the second question first. I believe it is the church that is to name evil as the body of Christ in the world. We are the body of Christ. We are God in the world, God's presence through us, and we have that responsibility to acknowledge and to name evil. The basis of our naming evil is to be scripture. It isn't like we take a poll and say, hey, what do you guys think? Should we call this evil? Not all in favor? 
Uh, no, we look to scripture, and scripture gives us uh, direction in this matter. But there come up at least several problems with this. The first is that the church isn't always right, okay? And in fact, there are different interpretations of scripture. So you say, well, the scripture tells us what's wrong. Yeah, but there are different interpretations. First of all, the church is not always right. And I'm, I want to be clear about that. Um, and when the church isn't right, we need to stand against it. In the 19th century, the church in this country was wrong about slavery. In the 20th century, the early part, we were, the church was wrong about eugenics. I mean, the church has gotten a lot of things wrong. Um, the church isn't perfect. And if necessary, we stand against it. But generally, we are not to make decisions on our own. I've mentioned to you before, I, I once served on a jury in a murder trial. And in probably what was the most powerful moment in the trial, I completely missed they give you notebooks, and so you take notes. Um, and there was a witness there, and apparently something just really powerful happened, and I missed it. And the prosecuting attorney mentioned it several times, particularly in the closing argument. And, you know, you're not allowed to discuss the case. So once we were finally, you know, we were allowed to go into the, the jury room and deliberate, my first question was, what happened? I missed it. And apparently there was the, the witness just stared down at, at the accused. And I completely missed it. And at that moment, I was so glad I wasn't a jury of one. Because if I was a jury of one, I would have missed it. But there were 12 of us, and what I missed, other people saw. In the same way with the church, uh, I may miss something. I may, I may think, well, that's really not that, that bad of a thing. And the rest of the church can say, no, Damon, that is wrong. That is evil. And we need to acknowledge it as evil and name it as evil. I'm not a church of one. We're to work together as a congregation, and not simply this congregation, but the body of Christ at large. That's the first thing. The second thing is we need to acknowledge that we are sinners, and we are capable of great evil. In naming, in acknowledging and naming evil, identifying it, we may, for a moment, think that we are free of evil. That, yeah, we're the good guys. They're the bad guys, so we're making a list of what's wrong and the evil things that people do. You may remember uh, this series sort of began when we looked at Matthew 7. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when, there, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now, I recognize that the context it's a Sermon on the Mount. He's talking about the people of God. He's talking about brothers and sisters in Christ. But the reality is we are all sinners. We're perhaps more familiar with what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 3. And part of it was in our prayer of confession today. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands God, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have, all to, they have together become worthless 
There is no one who does good, not even one. By the way, these are all taken from the book of Psalms, Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. And then in verse number 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is followed by words of grace and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice. Evil must be judged. It must be acknowledged. It must be named. And we are sinners, and we cannot for a moment forget that. Let me read you a quote. The same potential for evil and proneness to evil is in every one of us. Our first responses to evil may legitimately be shock, grief, or outrage. But before we take action, our second response should always be an examination of our own hearts. Me too? There but for the grace of God go I. Solzhenitsyn wrote in the Gulag Archipelago, if only there were evil people somewhere, insidiously doing or committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? We'd rather say, oh, we're the good guys. They're the bad guys. They're the evil ones. And Solzhenitsyn says, no, it goes right down through the center of us. We have the capacity to do good and to do evil. When the Times of London once asked several of Britain's leading intellectuals what they thought was the problem with the world, the celebrated journalist G.K. Chesterton sent back a postcard response, I am. What's the problem? I'm a sinner. We are all sinners. This leads to the third thing I would have you consider. First of all, we are to name, we are to acknowledge and name evil. We are to acknowledge that we are sinners. Thirdly, forgiveness. I want to remind you of the three-step progression I mentioned earlier. We ignore evil if it doesn't hit us in the face. When it does, in fact, we are shocked. And then we respond, we react in immature and dangerous ways. One of the keys to how we are to respond to evil is forgiveness. It is here in the cross of Jesus that we see something radically different. You may be thinking, how do we get from our response to evil to forgiveness? Let me ask you this. How has God responded to evil in your life? Point two was we're all sinners. How did God respond to that sin in your life? To the fact that you are fallen. How did he respond? He did so in forgiveness. In the Lord's Prayer we hear, Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In our text, we are told that we are to turn the other cheek, that we are to go the second mile. We are not to resist evil people, people who will take you for all you've got. Paul would write in Romans years later, do not repay anyone evil for evil. How did God respond to evil? 
We see that in the story of Adam and Eve, in the flood, in Babel. But we see his solution is, for my money, it's like, let's leave human beings out of this because they're just going to mess it up. And God says, no, I'm going to call this man, this 75-year-old man, and I'm going to make a whole nation out of him. And we're like, God, we've read the story. This is not, this is not a perfect person. Well, no one is. But God's solution to the problem of evil is through human beings. And that's why Jesus came as a human being. From Abraham to Jesus, the story of Israel is one of failure after failure after failure. But God has chosen to deal with evil through human beings. Ultimately, because we all fail, it is it's left to the Lord Jesus, and he, in fact, wins the victory over evil. We are to recognize what is evil, and I would say not be shy about it. Secondly, we are to recognize our own sinfulness, and let's not, let's not cut corners on that. We are sinners. Then thirdly, we are to forgive. We are to be gracious as God has been gracious to us. We are to forgive as God has forgiven us. This is to be our response to evil. Let's pray together. Our Father, so often we hear things that that enrage us. We hear about horrible crimes or we hear about people making really bad decisions that may affect us. We hear of those who have accumulated great wealth and seemingly have no compassion for those in need. There are times when we are just outraged And somewhere along the line, we forget how you have responded to evil, how long-suffering you have been and gracious. You didn't, you didn't whitewash, you didn't say, well, that, that actually wasn't that bad. But you acknowledge sin as sin, and we should as well. And not simply in the lives of others, but in our own lives. And in the face of that, we are to forgive. Gear read to us today from Psalm 96 that the trees will sing because you have come to judge, to judge the world. And we think in terms of punishment. The reality is your judgment is correction. It is to make things right. May we, as your people, stand against evil and name it for what it is, and yet be gracious, not somehow claim some perfection which is not ours to have, but to look to you, the Lord God Almighty.
I thank you for bringing us together today. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.